All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Young Old Heads podcast, where we try to bring a new generation's perspective to an old hobby. And I'm here again. My name is Tommy. I'm here with my good friend, Max, Cards Max. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing good. It is Saturday, June 18th, and we have a lot going on today. Yeah, we got a lot going on, including our third guest ever on the podcast and making his debut in card audio content. The legend, absolute legend, if you follow him on Instagram or if you know him in general, uh, Kimball at Sunsport Trading. Kimball, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me. I, uh, I really appreciate coming on here. I'm a little nervous, but I'm, I'm really excited to talk about some stuff with you guys. Hey, I know me and Max are like really intimidating guys. <laughs> yeah, the most intimidating. I know, we got that from, from before the show. <laughs> for sure. Well, I, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. Um, you're a guy, we, we met each other on Instagram. We kind of had some mutual friends from mm-hmm. college and growing up, and uh, you reached out, and we, were, we started t- talking, and I started following you, and I was like, holy shit, this guy, this guy knows his stuff, and I think he's a perfect guy to have on the podcast with me and Max as a kind of a guy our age in the collecting, but also into the in a very niche world where you're kind of building your own as you like, as we talked about before, you're a non-sport influencer, but also a sport influencer. You're an influencer, Kimball. Kimball, can you tell us a little bit about your collection, who you are? Um, I really appreciate all that. And an influencer is the farthest thing from what I try to be. So that's a little bit of an insult. um, um, So I started collecting really when I was about 10, nine or something like that. I went to high school in New York City. I mean, I was in middle school, elementary school at the time in New York City. And um, there's a card shop right across the street from the school. And um, I was a huge Patriots fan. Patriots were really killing it then. And um, I just wanted to open the football packs and get Brady cards, game used cards, like all that type of stuff. I never really, I never knew even at the time about grading or anything like that, but I was pretty into it for like three or four years. And, you know, once a year, I would say throughout high school, throughout college, I would like look through my binder of a ton of stuff. And I had decent stuff, you know, like I had some Brady game worn patch, some, you know, tops Chrome Brady gold from a while ago that like was banged up, but decent and stuff like that. Um, worth nothing, worth not that much, obviously in like 2010 or 2011, which was the draft classes I, I was like in love with. And then, um, during COVID, I mean, it's similar to a lot of people during the summer of 2020, late summer 2020, I just started seeing a lot of stuff on Instagram about like really, really big sales in basketball and the NBA finals, I remember was happening towards the end of that summer and people were kind of going, and the last dance was happening that uh, the Jordan documentary and there was a lot of buzz around the industry and I kind of thought like, oh, like, let me kind of look through my old stuff and see what they're worth today. And it was, I had, as I told you, once a year I'd gone through it and looked through some of the stuff online, but um, I saw just a huge jump at that point. And like, there were these basketball and football cards I collected that were just like 20 times more valuable than when I, what I ever thought. So I kind of, at that time I needed some money and I was, I just started selling them on eBay. You know, I made a little bit of an Instagram. It was, I was like Kimball's cards originally. And um, I really got into it then. And then, you know, I, really started to think about alternative sports and ways to, you know, make a lot of profit in this industry if, if yeah. there's a big swing. So yeah, I'm going to jump in here, Kimball. How, so you, I, me and you have similar stories of how we started collecting, but I think the way that you immediately went to, hey, the price, the market seems to be booming. I'm going to see where my lane is, I think um, is really interesting. So can you tell us like what, what was your first thought? What was your first thought of like, all right, I'm going to see how I can make 
this sort of big money that I'm seeing in these sales? How did you go from I'm going to sell some of my childhood cards on eBay to this? I'm going to see how I can make some significant money doing this. So I think I kind of went from like, oh, you know, the Zion prism and the jaw cards were super hype. But this was the like the fall of 2020. So stuff was going up like pretty rapidly. And um, like even these ba these oversaturated base cards were like kind of skyrocketing in value and everything. So I so I so I kind of started with that of like just getting you know some prospects like Darius Garland or you know uh, Zion or I, I always wanted like Zion cards. Time I thought he was going to be the greatest player ever, and um, you know I didn't I, I I kind of began to understand the supply and demand game that happened with those, but I you know I didn't see tremendous profit in those types of cards. Yes, those cards are really liquid and common, like John Moran cards and whatever different RPAs of them. And I think that translated to me saying, okay, like what's going to be like the next big thing? Like clearly basketball was like the thing for the end of the year, 2020 and beginning of 2021, obviously like more so than any other sport, everything went up, but more so for than any sport. Yeah. And um, you know, that's when I went into soccer and I really thought that it's the biggest global sport. There's lots of emphasis to grow it in America. There's world cup coming up. There's a lot less scarcity. There's a lot more scarcity when it comes to, the products released, the cards released, went modern and vintage, and it just seemed like a no-brainer. So that's kind of my first thought process of how I went in there, and then yeah, yeah, for sure. Max, Max's has kind of a, I think, a similar thought process in terms of you guys both when when the market was booming. Max before the market even started booming, but we're both trying to make, you know, figuring out what is going to be what I'm going to make money on. What can I submit for grading? What has low pop? What is going to be what people want? Max, did you have the same thought? I mean, you started out more in the Pokemon and baseball, and I know you've kind of branched out into F1 and soccer. Um, is that a similar thought that you had? Like, what is the next thing that's going to pop? What's the next thing I'm going to be able to make money on? I mean, I try not to look at it from a frame of what can I make money on and how can I maximize profit? Um, I, we've definitely seen, I guess, with F1 as an example, that whatever is happening into the card news with licensing and new products coming out, it can permeate into genuine fandom, although I will say my interest in F1 is definitely much more um, infantile than some people who have been following for years and are a lot more cultured regarding it. But, you know, I see race cars. I see them making cards of it. I get into it a little bit. I'm like, okay, cool. Then, okay, if people are buying and selling, then how can I implement this into my card strategy? But I... I just to clarify, I don't try to get into things saying, oh, how can I how can I be a big capitalist on this more so it stems genuinely from the enjoyment or just from the production of new cards. And yeah, I think that's, you know, and one of the reasons why Kimball is on the podcast is because he is a true collector of cards. He's an appreciator of the history and the art behind some of these really old vintage sets. But also, you know, you have Kim, Kimball, you have some of the dopest, dopest red refractors that I've seen out there on the market. So you know, you when you were looking at these markets and thinking about it, how much of the how much of what you personally are passionate about and interested in, how much of that impacts what you want to buy? I think it's imperative when I buy anything genuinely um, that I'd be interested in, in it, and I love it. I mean, I think I think if I was really purely thinking about money, I know there's some. I don't collect really football at all. I, I follow football a lot. I just don't know a lot about the market and stuff. And I know there's some pretty crazy swings with quarterbacks and you know getting young rpas rpas that can go up a lot 
Um, and for baseball, you know, I, a lot of obviously one of the most common things in the hobby is getting, you know, prospect cards and watching that type of player grow. And I, I like baseball, but I'm not really that interested in it. So, I mean, I think everything I collect and everything I buy, I say, I love this card. And I also think this card is undervalued or I think that this card's going to go up. Or sometimes I really don't and I don't really spend that much money on it if it's like something totally, totally personal that I yeah. buy all the time. Yeah, so you, you'll never be spending significant money on a card that you purely think is going to go up in value. You have to have some sort of personal like reason behind wanting the card or like some sort of aesthetic yeah, thing. Sort of personal interest, absolutely. I'm never... I've never gotten a prospect on a team that I, you know, don't know just researching the prospect. Like I'll get a prospect on the team that I like and if it pans out, so be it. I yeah. think um, really where the profits come from was I really started to buy vintage soccer, which has been, I've loved soccer my whole life. I'm like a huge fan and I saw vintage was really undervalued at the beginning. And I remember buying these raw cards for, you know, 30, 40, $50 that ended. I did so many, you know, bulk PSA orders that, ended up being 500 600 700 cards just as the market matured over a year so i think like that and then as i moved into f1 has been more like my profit area but i still love that more than anyone i'm a diehard f1 fan i'm a diehard soccer fan so yeah. i works. totally get that i like i personally like what i've been telling a lot of people with this recent warriors championship go dubs is i am incredibly lucky to, with the fact that I started getting back into collecting at the absolute low point of the Warriors in the last 10 years, like they were the worst team in the NBA when I started collecting again. And being able to like buy those cards, these Steph Curry rookie cards, these clay, you know, all this like game worn stuff and like cards that, you know, there weren't that many of them on eBay because people weren't listing them when they were that bad. But like the ones that did pop up and me, you know, not even really knowing it was the best time to be buying them, but just buying them and being getting back into it. I'm just incredibly lucky. And I think you know, as, as smart as you are, Kimball, like, I think you're just interests aligned with markets that were going to started booming. And I think part of, I mean, obviously a lot of it was, you knowing like history and low pop and understanding the supply and demand, but a lot of it also, you know, is luck. And it's, it's, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, I think it was super lucky. I think F1 has been a more interesting wave because there's been more ebbs and flows to it. I think with soccer, it's, you're exactly right. It was like, the perfect time in that fall, everything was, all the attention was kind of towards the other sports. Back, soccer at a moment in the summer of 2020, there was Mbappe base cards went up a lot and there was a lot of, you know, quick hype and a lot of crashing right after. But I think, yeah, with soccer, I wouldn't have been able to go into F1 had I not gone into soccer, mostly out of most of my soccer cards besides some personal collection stuff. But um, yeah, very lucky on, yeah, on that. For sure. And Max, what are your thoughts, Max, on that? Uh, this First of all, you were in the market for a long time before. Were you buying soccer cards, Max, before 2020 at all? Were you in that at all? I was not. You were strictly I mean, baseball and Pokemon? Um, I'd say the, Poke the Pokemon just stemmed more recently, I'd say, in 2021. Partly during the standing outside Target, scalping for boxes that were easily arbitrageable. But definitely rekindling the childhood interest I had when I was ripping packs when I was eight years old or so. Um, yeah, the mark I started buying soccer again, kind of as a byproduct of cards getting hot. I don't watch too much soccer, but I can enjoy Holland and Messi and Ronaldo's talent. Yeah, for sure. I think I think anyone who you know knows sports like respects them. I, w I will add. I think. Um... 
I know as I've like become more ingrained with the card community on different forms of social media, which is obviously so vibrant and connected, you know, there's a lot of, you can say, yeah, like I went in a, a good time, but I know a lot of people that were really bullish on these cards and buying tons and tons and tons of inventory at Messi, Ronaldo, you know, Ronaldinho, Pele, you know, these key cards in like 2011, 2012, 2013. I think those types of people I bought, what I was buying at was 10, 20 times to what they were buying at. So, you know, you could always say that somebody's luckier than the next. Um, I think that it fell in the right place, but I definitely think, you know, I have had entered the market in a very hot time for it. You know, yeah, right. I totally time. get that. Uh, something that what you just said reminded me is just part of the game of like being a person on social media and collecting cards and like being on the internet for it is figuring out who you should be listening to, who you should be talking to, who's actually knows what they're talking about, but also like finding people that align with how you think about things and, you know, being like, wow, that's like, ex like me and you, Kimball, have a lot of times where like, you'll say something and I'm like, wow, like I've had this thought before, like exact thought. And I didn't even really know that other people were thinking that, but now I'm like, oh, well, like what's, well, what's the other thing? What's going to be the next thing that we're talking about? Um, I'm going to bring up a name real quick for you, Kimball. Senna, your man. Can you tell us your journey with Senna cards? It's taken 13 minutes for us to talk about him. So I need you to do a quick, quick explanation of like how you started with this, what your, what your first Senna card was, who he is for the, un, the ignorant listeners. Well, home. I'll start with, um, I'll start with kind of my F1 interest. I actually, I'm not like some long-term F1 fan, like a lot of people. I just watched Drive to Survive, the Netflix show last summer, at the beginning of last summer, and I like just fell in love with the sport. And then it quickly aligned with like, oh, I see a lot of value here. So I started collecting, you know, a lot of modern wax, a lot of modern cards of F1, but I really didn't dive into the vintage thing. And, you know, I, what I was thinking about with my journey with collecting soccer was I made a far better profit on my vintage cards as modern collectors, I believe, trickle into the vintage area over time and generally every like kind of category. And, you know, this is the fall of 2021. I, the first, there was a card that was listed on eBay for about a year for about 14 or 14, 000, or 17,000. It was listed on eBay for or best offer. It was a SGC seven Senna rookie, which is, if anybody's seen the Senna rookie, it's a clear, weird test market card that's extremely, extremely scarce and extremely condition sensitive. This was pop one with none graded higher. I think at the time there were like 18 graded by SGC in total, PSA or BGS didn't grade it. And I had been eyeing the card for a while and um, you know nobody was buying, biting on it. My, my friend who collects with me kind of pointed out like, yo, would you split this with me? Like, this is really crazy. Like I looked up who this guy Senna is. He seems like the greatest driver ever his story in which he was killed tragically you know while being the most aggressive driver in the history of formula one and definitely the most vibrant personality like it was just a fantastic story for the greatest card of all time of the greatest driver of all time so i bought that card i i kind of kicked my friend out of the deal and i was like okay i offered him i think fourteen thousand, and i bought it for that and that was the biggest card i had ever purchased at the time by far like by far and sure enough two days later two more Senna's got listed. I had never seen another one on the market before then, and two more got listed. Uh, I think it was a SGC3 and an SGC4.5 in response to the sale of the SGC7. And, um, you know, I kind of had the idea of like, you know, what if I real, I see so much value in Senna as he's cheaper than Lando Norris, George Russell, 
Max Verstappen cards, and this guy's the greatest driver of all time. And um, he has so much of a loyal following around the world. You know, let me just be as aggressive as I can, buying every single one of his cards from every single year in all the highest grades I can possibly do, and just focus my collection on that. And, you know, I watched the Senate documentary. I really learned more about him as like a human being and like how charitable he was and how he gave up his fortune to kids in Brazil and just how he was, you know, such a, such a legendary, amazing person in the history of Formula One and to the country of Brazil. You know, I have a few Brazilian friends and I've talked to them about it afterwards. And they're like, he literally is like the biggest hero in the history of Brazil. You know, yeah. Brazil was having a hard time economically and he was wearing Brazil with pride at every single race. And he was just the biggest national hero. So for those reasons, I saw it as an excellent investment. It was so fun collecting his cards as I liked that they were some of the same issues as 80s vintage soccer cards. And I knew how to collect them. And um, ever since then, you know, I just, now I have such a large inventory of, of Senna and I rarely sell anything, um, but I'm always on the hunt for more. Yeah. and. Real quick, I think, you know, I, I'm going to let Max do a quick bit about how he watched the Sun documentary after this. But for the people back home, we've missed an important aspect or important part of your story, I think, which is another aspect of luck, which is a card that you hit out of a box, which I feel like kind of spurred your bigger purchases down the line. Do you want to tell people about that? This is a very, very funny story. Um, and one that I, I ponder about a lot if it was the right decision almost every day. Um, I... Uh, for Christmas of 2020, um, I asked my I sent my family a link on DA Card World to a 2019-2020 Topps Chrome UEFA soccer box, which had um, Holland and Fati rookies in it. The Holland auto doesn't come in any variations. It's just a silver auto. There's no super factor. There's no red. There's no orange. Just just that. It's super short print. I think the it's like pop four. I, when I got it, it was pop one. But uh, it was pop four in a PSA 10, I think, now. It shows you how short-printed it is. In the, and so I ripped the, I got the box. You know, was, I think the box was like 600, 700 or something at the time. And um, first pack, I hit the Holland Auto, which is like beyond a case hit. That's like the product hit you can hit. I think it's likely printed to less than 25. Yep. It was the most valuable card I ever had my hands on at the time. I was like so like, holy shit, this is insane yep. i didn't really understand the value but i sent it right to psa graded gemmed instantly and um you know i was eyeing a complete set of 1973 panini ok vip which i believe is one of the most important non-sport sets of all time it features politicians it features musicians actors it features athletes it features painters, writers. It's it's such a complex set with such beautiful art. And I encourage anybody listening to take a look at it. 1973 Panini OK VIP. And so this guy had a complete setup. And um, I decided, you know what, I'm going to sell the card in order to buy that set because I didn't have the cash to buy both. And the, car, the, the Holland card sold to a friend on Instagram. He PayPal me the money. It was a really quick transaction. And I bought a few more non-sport cards and that really sparked my love for non-sport. I really started to go in and say, okay, hold on a minute here. Somebody like Darius Garland or John Moran is not gonna be remembered in 50 years and 40 years, as I'm looking at my cards right now, like, as John Lennon or, you know, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> or Teddy Roosevelt or, 
the Beatles or James Dean or just these legendary figures. And I really started to kind of go into them and say, what is the rookie card for a celebrity, for a personality? And I just, you know, I couldn't feel more strong about any section of the market as I do there long term. I yeah. think modern, the last thing I'll say is I think, you know, modern non-sport cards, the Jay-Z tops cards, the Obama tops cards, you know, there's, there's money there and there's interest there. And I think just as it's done in every other sport, I think that's going to trickle down back in time, back in time, and back in time more. And um, yeah, so that's how I started my like real love for non-sport. Yeah. And, yeah. I also think that, yeah, I wanted the people to get a little background on how you kind of started getting into this kind of like buying bigger cards. Because I think something me and Max talk about a lot is like how we've had, we had to build up our like trust in ourselves to buy bigger cards and like more, like spend more money being like, yo, I know I'm never going to see this card again. I need to trust myself here. This is something that I should see as an opportunity. That's something that, you know, you kind of, we kind of lucked into it maybe with the Senna, like the first one, like kind of like didn't know totally the background on how many it would pop up. You didn't know exactly what was going to happen after you bought that one. Um, but we're, I'm going to, I need Max's opinion here. Max, you watched the Senna movie last night. Can you tell us why Senna is someone that you feel like after watching that is someone that the hobby would love? I think it's interesting that you phrased the question how the hobby would love him because the hobby usually loves polarization and Senna seems to be the farthest thing from it. He's a you know nationally adored and acclaimed F1 driver who I don't want to you know look at personal philosophy but seems to be very stoic and family oriented. You know I was watching you know one the documentary last night. And that you could just see the lot, a ton of pride on his sleeve as a very little controversy figure who was simply chasing greatness at near all costs. Yeah, I think it's a good case study of like what makes someone a prime person for the hobby to love. And that's something, Kimball, I think you think about when you're thinking about who's this like greatest, like the Tesla rookie. Like he's in pop culture as a name. Like maybe if Tesla, the company didn't exist, you wouldn't be buying those rookie cards. They wouldn't be going for as much but you're thinking about what is culturally relevant, what will stay culturally relevant going forward, and what are cards that kind of amplify that. Like, I think something, just a quick comparison across, like, you wouldn't, like, there's certain cards that exist that no one would think would be worth that much, but they are because they're particularly culturally relevant. In basketball, the first thing that's coming to my mind is, like, the 2008 top set with, like, LeBron doing his chalk toss, guarding Kobe in his card. Those are cards that are culturally relevant, not just because it's a 2008, like fifth year vet base card of LeBron. It's because of the picture. It's because of what that image represents in people's minds about LeBron. And like, I think that crosses over for many athletes and something that I, you talk about a lot with your Senna cards, because you buy up all of them. You're buying, you're not just buying rookie Senna's, you're buying cards that come up randomly. Uh, can you talk about maybe like one or two Senna cards that you've bought in that maybe you didn't you know wouldn't be the most valuable but you think are the coolest um yeah so the, i will i will respond to max real quick about the controversy part i did want to say is although he was and is now a very non-controversial figure i view that because of his death really when he was a driver you know it was kind of europeans versus south americans he had a rivalry with somebody named alan prost and senna was constantly constantly under criticism for being too aggressive of a driver and having too big of an attitude during his career. And it's interesting, obviously, I think the narrative has changed over time to people being like, oh, he's so, was so beloved and he is so beloved now, but I do think at the time that there was so much fire in him and that does provide some 
to his allure. And it was, it really grew Formula One, that, that rivalry. Um, so I just wanted to add that part. But um, I think I have, I mean, I, I try to at least buy one of every Senna card that I've ever seen exist generally. Um, I have multiple of a lot of them, but. That is know, such a collector thing to say. I love it. The 19, um, there's a 1994 Portuguese sticker that is generally regarded as his last card during his playing, I mean, during his career. And it's pictured him wearing this hat actually um, about like three or four weeks before his death. And it's a set that isn't graded by anybody, but it's well known among hardcore F1 collectors. And, you know, I got it for 60 bucks and I really, really love that card. I look at it all the time. And, you know, I'm working with PSA to grade it and I don't, I would never sell it. It's, you know, something I love. I, I also think, I have these rare discs from 1984, which I obviously am bullish on in the long term, but um, they're not graded by anybody in there. You know, these very unique thing, pick little caricatures of his helmet and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I, I could, the list could go on and on of the type of random set of cards like I want. You know, if I see one I don't have, I'm going to get it and I'm yeah. going to get it in the highest grade possible. I think that there's more desired ones than next. The 1986 Super Sport and the 1987 Super Sport have proved to be like key, key cards with a lot of money behind them. And um, so I, you know, will pick up 10, 15, 20 copies of each or something like that. But, you know, for the rest, I'll, I'll I, I love, I love them all. Yeah. Is there a uh, PSA set registry of Senna cards where you can see all their super collectors and just how, amassed some people's stashes are um i have never i've been thinking about getting on the registry i haven't really messed around with it too much to be honest i like you know i a lot of them are graded with sgc because psa have their heads up their butts when it comes to vintage f1 they like just started grading the center rookie like three months ago they they've done all the super disorganized stuff so i have a lot of my vintage f1 is in sgc which i actually trust more for for that type of thing but i, I do want to set it up i don't I don't think there's any question though that I have probably 70% of the pop of generally every Senna card of every single year that's graded by PSA. Yeah, um, I, I want, I, can you talk more about your communication with PSA? I think that's something that a lot of people would find super interesting, like how you maybe talk about also bearing the lead here. I, I Kim, Kimmel might be a little humble here, but he literally has the probably, I mean, not, Probably he has the best vintage F1, if not just F1 in general collection, probably in the world. There's, there's some guys that have some way more valuable, like modern F1 collections with these dynasty and stuff like that. But I definitely, um, I definitely think I've put in the effort to, you know, consolidate all the key F1 cards. There's a few things I'm missing, but, you know, a large inventory of all the key cards wherever I can. Can you talk about your, the specific card you, you know to be what you consider the best f1 card if not you know the holy grail of vintage f1 the one that you talked with psa about and uh talk about that communication back and forth with psa and how you disagree with the final grade on it oh yes okay okay wait i know exactly what you're talking about so yeah. um i uh i won an auction for it was a no-brainer option. It was a Senna pants. So the Senna rookie, if anybody has seen it, comes in a few variations. It comes in a car variation and it comes in a portrait variation. As common in even modern F1 sets, the portrait's really the desired card. And I think with Senna, he has such a bright portrait that people love on it. And it's obviously one of the most important cards. 
it comes perf it come it, with a perforated edge because they're traditionally attached to another card. And as I've done my research, there's there are two variations. For Senna, for example, it's um, Patrick Tambay and Elio DeAngelis on the panel. And for the car variation, it can either come in Derek Warwick with Senna and his car, or, which I did not know existed, Alan Prost. And for anybody who knows F1, Alan Prost was Senna's greatest rival. And he they went toe-to-toe -to -toe as teammates. They have a long history together. And it's pretty much a dual rookie card of the two of them. So I saw this auction from an Italian set seller for selling both of them raw. He was holding them with his bare hands, no top loader, no anything. Yep. And I bid, I bid it a lot more than I paid. Um, and I ended up winning it for, I think about 17,000 or 18,000, which I was a steal, I thought, because of the way these pr prices of these cards were going for. And it was the only known Prost and Senna card together that's ever been seen. And um, so it came with both of them. They came here. I looked at them. The portrait panel, the dual portraits, was in really good condition. You know, one of the best I've seen. But the Senna and Prost card was in the finest condition of any 1984 card I have ever seen. I dealt with like over 20 or 30 cards, uh, different cards of 1984. And this one was just flawless. The, it's a plastic card that has inherent scratches. There were no scratches. It literally looked like a piece of glass. It was so perfect. And um, I sent them both in and I got a PSA seven on the dual panel and I got a PSA six on the Senna Prost, which is shocking to me because when you had them side by side, it's obvious that the Senna and Prost was better condition than anything I've ever seen. And I actually just picked up a PSA eight of the other variation of the cars and I put them side by side next to each other and you can just see it's not even close. That set of Prost deserves a PSA nine or 10 for sure. Um, so I, yeah, I went, I went at PSA just emailing them like crazy about it because I mean, although I wasn't, I was disappointed. It was an amazing grade with the PSA six for that card. I just felt like it made no sense. And you know, that goes along with how, PSA doesn't really know what they're doing in terms of vintage F1 cards. If that's just what you're talking about. Talking yeah, about. that's exactly what I'm talking about. Because I, this is one of those cases where you have dove so deep into the F1 vintage world that you are more knowledgeable on what is a good condition F vintage F1 card than PSA, oh, which is like really saying something about like the legitimacy behind grading companies, I think. And like For a sure. lot of people think that PSA is out here hiring experts in all these fields, but really they rely on their submitters to provide information on the cards they're submitting a lot more than I think people realize um, and don't even really know what they're grading sometimes, like especially with a card as rare as that, as the, the pro Senna card that you're talking about, like that card literally does not exist really anywhere else. Like the yeah. fact that they're telling you that that's a PSA six, when you are the one who knows all the different variations and what they look like and what the, conditions mean and what you know you know all the all across the board you're much more of an expert on that and i would trust a kimball eight on that card a lot more than i would trust a psa we also my own grading company add to the list of trash graders hey well, um, max will be your first grader um <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no i mean the last thing i'll say about that is um i yeah i mean there's so many i work with psa constantly emailing them back and forth and they really are frustrating to deal with on this front of getting them to you know i have so much vintage f1 is so rare and hasn't been graded and hasn't been collected this is really the very beginning of 
collecting vintage F1 besides a very small community of people. Um, so they don't grade all these cards. You know what I mean? They're, so there's a 1984, it's called like a collect cow chromos center rookie, which is a big, bold center card. That's a 1984 true rookie. A lot of people say they value it higher than the Panini, the uh, rookie. I have a bunch of copies of it and PSA just won't grade it. I have the full album. Um, I could probably get SGC to grade it, but I'm going back and forth, getting them documentation, contacting the company back and forth. So, you know, in terms of PSA Vintage F1, I have most of my Vintage F1 is raw because I just, you know, these are sets that they're going to be graded over the next few years. I want to be one of the first people to get my cards there. Yeah. And, um, you know, I work with them constantly on that. They're a pain in the ass, but it is what it is. Yeah, I think something, something that's like an underlying topic amongst all our conversations um, and something that me and Max talk about all the time is just how hard it is to research cards online and just like how little of a central, you know, like there's no place to go to figure out, oh, these are all the Senate cards. You had to go online and figure it out. Max, you love talking about the PSA set registry. And I think that was, um, I love that you brought that up. Can you tell us like what, Max, your, why you love this PSA set registry real quick and like kind of what information that gives a collector? I am definitely have a bit of admiration towards just seeing some cards slabbed, even if they are a PSA 8 or PSA 7 for Ultra Modern. Um, it's definitely something that, relative to this new generation of collectors, is dying. But I think it is fun to see the competitiveness in different collectors in who has almost every single type of Charizard card graded or who has them all graded in a 10. And if you can categorize the ones that exist and the ones that have been graded by a company which is a lot easier to do for more known players when more recent sets than it is for vintage f1 drivers even just compiling a list of what are all of the cards that exist and who has the most of them is a fun way to compete since really collecting is rooted in a little bit in showboating a little bit in saying why something's cool why something's interesting and to have a leaderboard of who has the most of the cool and the interesting items is definitely something that is captivating. I, to I totally agree. And I, I definitely want, I've wanted to get everything on there, but I think the real problem with that and the way that I collect is I'm collecting so niche, you know, like such a niche area of the industry that, you know, this, the Panini Center wasn't graded by PSA till December. You know, that was the first. So if you looked at PSA, sometimes the way I look at cards and one of like my initial searches, I was telling Tommy about this once is, you know, you go on PSA, you go to the pop report, then you go to player search and you look up Catherine Hepburn, the actress, and you find the earliest cards of her ever made with Senna. If you did that, it would tell you 1986 super sport, even though there are a lot of 1984 cards that exist for Senna that PSA yet doesn't know about. So, you know, I definitely think that that's something to take in consideration, especially when you come to Vintage F1, that I, you know, was a real shock to me. I was like, you know, there's, a, there, there's not that information there. And it, the information can be misleading in the sense that it appears that the 1986 is the true rookie. And you're like, where in the world did this 1984 rookie card come from? Yeah. You know? yeah also and even when we're talking about, you know, Tommy and I have gone back and forth because I am a Nirvana fan. And one of my biggest gripes with non-sport is the production of players or cards just because it's marketable. Like Tiger King receiving cards is because of the big Netflix documentary and not cards from 2015. Tommy and I, I'm a Nirvana fan. We've specifically discussed when is the first Nirvana card, which to my understanding and personal research is 1994. 
But with the vast amount of 95, 96 releases and then American Pie, why would I want a card that's after he was a big deal, after the band was a big deal, and that after, you know, Kurt Cobain dies, I'd rather get in on something, you know, get in on the Kurt Cobain rookie card before he's a big deal, before he's a big thing, or as early as possible. But connecting this to Senna, not having a central database and having to do the grunt work and without even sometimes a certainty that it's correct is something that there's a little bit of extra legwork for the collector, but also sometimes has a little bit more significance as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean nice. yeah, wait, Kimo, go ahead. I was just saying, it's also fun, you know, that's part of it. Oh, game. of course. Yeah. yeah, that's Max Max always says, like, there's a, there's a, defi- there's kind of a fluid line between a card being so niche and so obscure that, like, no one really would have, like, ever find out about it. And that makes it not as valuable, but also, like, how that also adds value on the other side, where if a card is so niche and cool and, like, has a cool story behind it, and you explain it to someone, and then they immediately understand the significance and importance of it. Um, there's kind of that kind of battle all the time in card, the card world, I think, because of like, yeah, you want to find the most obscure, oldest thing, but also, what is anyone going to care about it? It's unclear. Um, but as a collector, you know, that is kind of up to your own discretion. As a Senate expert, you know, you kind of can make those decisions for yourself and feel confident about it. But if someone's maybe just getting into collecting, just starting to look into the world of cards that kind of delegitimizes the market and industry in some sense because of how hard it is to find information absolutely and i think um you know i think in non-sport it's even more of a gray area right because in if you look at formula one or like let's say senna as an example it's like there's not going to be he was a f1 driver and he was an f2 driver he had a rookie season where he started his career there's not going to be cards previous to that with a actress or a singer or a world leader or something like that like you just don't know when the earliest card of theirs is going to be like when did they get recognition you know i uh, linda ronstadt is a 1970s musician who i is one of my favorite musicians ever and you know i had thought her 1980 panini rock and pop collection was like the key earliest card i look for cards all the time and a friend of mine on instagram recently informed me there's this 1978 mexican issue um card that's not graded by anybody and that just happens all the time like that yeah, you know you yeah. have no ideas and you have to be careful you have to be really careful of that if you're like trying to put all your eggs in one basket and some vintage thing you know even first soccer guys will know this as 1958 pele was the key rookie year the key rookie card now there's i think two different cards in which that have surfaced from 1957 for the goat of soccer you know yeah. and um so that can happen and it's really important to be careful there yeah and like I think a lot of people take it for granted that we know the Hannes Wagner is the holy grail of vintage baseball cards. Like, I think those sort of things, those sort of niche rare things with stories behind it, like about how rare they are, not everyone even knows that they exist yet. A specific example, Kimball, that I really want you to talk about right now is you've gone kind of deep into the U.S. president world of collecting. And there's one holy grail U.S. president card that I'm not sure everyone really knows about. I know that the you know the people really really in the know know about it, but I think the general public, you know, the general average collector of baseball and normal like sports cards won't know that there's this holy grail U.S. president card out there. Can you tell us about that one? So this card we're, we're going to talk about, I definitely think it has had legs for over two decades. It's been valuable. It is such an important card. Definitely the most valuable, you know, most important non-sports card, rarest, and that's the 1932 Caramel Presidents William McKinley. Well, McKinley doesn't seem like one of 
the biggest presidents ever. 1932 Caramel was a great set. A lot of people know for baseball stars, they had some golf players on it. They did a bunch of different types of stuff, but they did a presidential set that I'm actually working on completing right now. And it was a set of 31. And on the back of the card, it says, if you submit all 31 to the U.S. Caramel Company, we will return the package with like two pounds or three pounds of chocolate, just an absurd amount of chocolate. <laughs> that they couldn't afford based on the supply of cards they're putting out. So they either made the McKinley, the 31st card, just the most random president, super, super short printed, or they never released it at all. I think there are two of PSA in all grades. I think there's two at SGC in all grades. And those are the only four that have surfaced. That card's been a five-figure card, I think, for over 15 years now. It's, you know, had a ton of legs for a long time. And, um, you know, that type of scarcity, that type of story, you know, robbing kids of their chocolate like that, is uh, I think what makes it, you know, I mean, that's what makes the Honus Wagner so desirable. Of the, it's the story of behind it of, you know, how he didn't like smoking and he didn't want there. Were they ever actually distributed in packs? Did these come out of the factory? Where did they come from? And the McKinley, I think 1932 Caramel is one of the most important sets depicting presidents and world leaders ever and really pioneered that. And to have a super, 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 super short print chase card, if you will, in the 1930s is just a fascinating concept and um i value that card i mean i would like to get one at one point so it's probably not good gamesmanship for me to, yeah. to share but i've kind of assumed that ship has sailed but um you know i i think that card is that that's so tremendously undervalued yeah, there, there, there is no there is no ceiling for that card that's the rare you know that's it's like something where yeah. it's it's like 10 times rarer than a wagner yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, but the fact that it is so rare, it is so obscure, and like, there's so much mystery around it, means that a lot of people don't even know it exists. And yeah, um, and I think, you know, that, that that's the type of stuff that I, you know, I love. You know, and I think rare, non-sport cards like that, stories like that, it's just delightful. Yeah, exactly. Um, Max, you have any thoughts on that card? I know you don't. You know, you're not a huge political, you know, non-sport person, but just like hearing that, did you know about that card? I did not know about that card or that story. And just hearing that story for the first time, the uniqueness and the allure of it is evident in the storytelling itself. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of the perfect example of what you're talking about, Mac, what you like to talk about. Like the story adds value. And even though William McKinley, like not a super significant president in terms of the grand scheme of things, like imagine if that was an important president card, how much like, would that be more valuable? But it is still, the story adds the value, which I think is. Or even the aspect of, you know, going on a very different connection here, but Alex Gordon's uh, taken out of the circulation rookie card. Um, obviously, there is a lot of issues. Um, Kimball, I don't know how much you know about this. I'm trying not to butcher. I, I know the story. Okay. It. So, say, say it flawlessly. So basically, Alex Gordon is this baseball player he had a prospect he was a big hype prospect i think in 2005 or six five uh, i think five so yeah and that was right when the mlb made their like rookie card logo rules about how you can't have a rookie card unless you've played in the major league game or been called up uh and tops had already produced the one for alex gordon a rookie card and they had to basically take it out of production and there's various um examples where one time they like there's one variation that's literally like there's a giant square missing in the middle of the card where like somehow it made it into packs it's just a very niche card that like has a story behind it i think you can find examples of that throughout the history of the hobby there yeah. are examples of it and, um, and i'm the sure thing there is, are in soccer and other sports as well 
Alex Gordon is a good but not great player. I don't know if the Kansas City Royals will retire his number. No, they won't. They won't? You're, <laughs> no. you're calling it right there? I, I, I know, yeah. You, okay, well, you know for sure. But regardless, he will be in, uh, you know, a well-regarded player in that area no matter what, but definitely not a nationally acclaimed player, really, or someone who has a sniff of the Hall of Fame. But if that were – I don't mean to slander someone, but Stephen Dugar on yeah. the Giants who has his – Slander him, please. Who has his rookie card just taken out of the production. The fact that it is Alex Gordon adds some significance to him because he wasn't a nobody. He was an all-star at some points. Yeah. But that also adds to the storytelling aspect. And I think with, of course, United States presidents, it's hard to find any of them that are truly insignificant, but some names are more marketable than others. Of course. I mean, I think what's important to look at is what makes the, I'm sure there's other rare cards of early 1900 sets that are more rare than the Wagner, but the T206 set is one of the staple baseball sets. I don't even collect baseball, and I know that Ty Cobb and the Cy Young and, or whatever, you know, these are huge. And the, I know that Eddie Plank is short printed as well, and that's what people uh, chase all the time. But it needs to be a really important set. And I think the set you guys are talking about, I'm not really sure, familiar with the full story, but, you know, I think even more value would be there if it's 1932 Caramel, which performs across all sports, non-sport, golf, um, Baseball, you know, the I know the Babe Ruth does well on it, you know, stuff like that. It needs to be a very important set. Yeah, and, I think uh, I, I think to do a quick jump, but it's something that like as of collecting modern cards, it's hard to be forward thinking and like, oh, this set that was just released will be an iconic set in 30, 40 years. And I think in F1, there's a perfect example with last year, 2020 Tops Chrome or yeah, 2020 Tops Chrome. Yeah. People are like already declaring it this iconic set um but you know it's what what are your thoughts on that sort of thing? i mean i think speaking specifically to i think exactly you're right i think these big key sets perform over time look at 2012 prism you know those prism golds of fucking any player go berserk um i think 2014 world cup for soccer you can kind of more liken to 2020 top scrum for f1 Yo, there's a lot of hype behind 2020 Topps Chrome F1, a lot of which I literally um, I think is totally unjustified. And that's the reason that I invest in vintage F1, because I feel like in comparison to that, it's undervalued. But no one can deny, I mean, F1 cards weren't really that scarce, that weren't really that heavily made. I mean, the, the next step before that that people know about is 2006 Futera and 2005 Futera. There's like no F1 sets before 2020. This set exploded. It has a loyal, loyal, loyal backing of collectors that are going to be collecting and putting more money into these cards over the next 10, 12, 20 years. And, um, you know, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that a key set is super important for an investment and for, you know, the desirability of, of a card. And I think 2020 F1 is as, as much hype as it has. And a lot of people say it's been pumped and whatever. And sure, it, sure it has, hell has, but that's an iconic, iconic, iconic set that has a lot, a lot, a lot of loyal collectors behind it. And that set, the demand has outweighed the supply for that set for a long, long, long time, a year, two years. And that's why the prices of those wax are going up, 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 like constantly. Yeah, and but you know, you say a long, long time, but two years in the hobby is like a, you know, nothing really. I mean, like- have, I mean, I view the hobby as such a volatile industry, you know? I mean, I think people, it depends on what you're collecting, but to have something that has continuous, I mean, what are F1, I bought, I remember buying F1 boxes 
in the spring of 2021 for like 350 bucks from my local card shop, 2020 F1 Chrome boxes. I think they are between 3,800 bucks and 4,000 bucks right now. And they've been consistently rising for that time period. I don't think you see, I think you see swings of like two months, three months and whatever to see sustained growth like that for that long is really, really unique, I think. And um, that's why I say it's like a long, it's, you know, there's vintage cards and, you know, old Babe Ruth, Goody and, you know, whatever, these types of cards that are Mickey Mantle PSA 9 or 10 that will consistently grow over time. But to have something grow at that kind of rate, that consistently and hold its value to now where it's still going strong, I think is very unique. Max, do you have any sets that like modern sets uh, that you can think of off? Like, I know one of them that I was going to ask you about is like that, like first year Sapphire Topps Chrome Baseball is something that I know you feel like is a potentially long-term great iconic potential set. Um, do you have any thoughts about what, like, what do you, if you have any modern sets that you think will be iconic going forward besides this F1 one? Uh, it's definitely very difficult. Um, I think a good thing to look forward is the firsts or whence there was innovation designed into creating a set um, for Pokemon. One that immediately comes to mind is 2019 Hidden Fates, which has the big black and red Charizard that is the staple and really the what caused the resurgence even before the Paul brothers got involved, the resurgence of Pokemon card collecting and what gave it this rise of, okay, these cards are rarer than those normally in packs and there's this huge massive subset. So Hidden Fates for Pokemon is one that comes to mind. 2016 Top Sapphire Baseball, yes and no, because it is an online exclusive and there are only 250 sets and it is a full factory set. Who knows how many sealed sets are even left in existence. Um, so I guess when looking for these types of releases that are prominent or could be, for lack of a better word, iconic, looking for the first aspects and the innovation is a key aspect yeah i think also continuity is something that we like to talk about a lot so knowing with f1 that like tops has made so much money on f1 tops chrome that they will make f1 tops chrome now for the next 20 years there will be a set every year and knowing that like oh in 20 years that'll be the first one yep yeah there's a big difference in 2020 when tops is releasing pierre gasly and lewis hamilton as their first tops now cards and when at the same time give or take a few weeks they're releasing cornhole tops now cards and for really for me as a spectator to every aspect of that what made f you know again as an uncultured united states american what makes f1 that more prominent than cornhole it's just tops trying to maximize and make the most of its new licenses obviously i'm wrong and f1 is very cool i have adopted that view and i enjoy it but at that time maybe i'm a bit cynical but i was thinking this is just marketing and this is just trying to maximize and produce as many licensed cards as possible. And I don't like that. I would say I disagree with you. I can understand somebody thinking F1's new, but I disagree. I think F Tops had no idea that 2020 F1 was going to have the type of demand that it did. That's why there's not that many boxes that are available and the price of sealed wax is so high. They put no retail product out whatsoever. Um, you know, they got autos from all 20 drivers in like a really high end set. I mean, I think, I, I really do think that they lucked into it. They didn't, they, they didn't think that though. And look what they're doing now. They have black ray wave light refractors and these retail exclusive type things and tops flagship and tops Chrome and top, you know, they're adding more and more and more and more tops lights out. 
Topps Chrome, there's no way they were releasing it. I, what was the starting point? Like 200, 200 something bucks. It was released at through Topps. You know, that's yeah. like, what is that? 20, that's 20 times less than what it is right now. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what Matt, I think what you guys are kind of saying is like Tops was kind of trying out a lot of different things. They're like, what can we get a license for? What can we put out product for? F1 ended up being, you know, a flash in the pan, like, oh shit. And then this now is going to be popular. And then now they're going over saturation and just like yeah. pumping out as much product. Oh, and these years they will, but that's even more of an impetus, I feel like, to be bullish on the 2021 of the 2020 F1 set because you're like, that's the set. I just want to make sure that, you know, clarify a little bit. I mean, cornhole wasn't just being used as a, you know, something to make fun of. There were American cornhole, American cornhole league tops now cards in 2020. We respect cornhole, but also <laughs> there's a Jorge Masvidal card with a print run of 1,173, who I believe is also a UFC fighter, but all of the other cards have a print run under 300 with most being in the one hundreds. So, so Kimball, that set is obviously awesome. Will the first Senna Topps Chrome card, if that ever comes to be, will that be something that you seek after? Or is that something that you're now going to see as like more of an oversaturation thing where like, Topps is just trying to like keep trying to cash in on each new set? I mean, if you gave me a red, I like love red refractors. I collect it in soccer. I collect them in F1. I collect them in, I, I, I guess just soccer in F1. Um, but if they uh, if they had a red Senna or a Super Senna, I would buy it at whatever price the auction went to, for nice. sure. I, I mean, I think I wouldn't be like, depending on the design, maybe I would be get golds and check it out and get some more variations if there was some insert, sure. But I think if you had a clean portrait and it was additioned like that, hell yeah, I'd get in there. You know, that's, yeah. I, 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 I try to collect everything I can. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I, as we spoke about a little bit earlier, I think the licenses of these individual drivers, they're not under some players association like the NBA where they can kind of get everybody in one swoop. It's a little bit more complicated with the old drivers and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So, but yes, I mean, I, I, I would, you know, why yeah. not? Yeah, for sure. I, I Something that, another sport that's pretty similar to F1 in terms of licensing is golf where like they don't, there's not like some golf association as you're seeing with like the live stuff right now. It's like, they're, these guys are more or less in control of their own license and can do whatever they want. So with golf, there's like some guys who have rookie, quote unquote, rookie cards and they're like 70 years old because yeah. they just like never were in sets or like just didn't never like saw that. Um, yeah. So I think potentially a potential like comparison for F1 going forward is like looking back to like, oh, Jack Nicholas has RPAs in like 2001. So it's like, are those like if Senna has an RPA? I guess no, he wouldn't though, because he didn't. I would. I would. Mean, if you look like, at, go look at some of these, you know, flawless, game worn. God, I mean, look at two. Let me give you a good example. Look at two thousand three exquisite limited logos: Jordan, Magic, Bird, Bill Russell. You know, all those types of guys. Uh, an old, old school guy with a modern card that has anything game worn, race worn. You know, any of that type of stuff with an on-card auto is going to have inherent value there, especially something like Senna, whose auto is insanely rare. So there's no such thing as a non-cut auto for that. But Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we we could probably talk for a few hours, I think, Kimball. So we're going to, I think I think we should uh, save some of our topics that we were talking about before for a future episode. But Max, is there anything that this conversation is making you think about that you want to get off your chest here? I am learning a lot today and also really dissecting into 
what is marketing and what is genuine fanfare for a person for an individual and wanting to produce a card for it. So diving into that discussion was proves fruitful today. Yeah. This was super fun, Kimball. You have anything else you want to say before we go? Like anything important or anything? Nothing. I mean, um, thank you so much for having me on. You guys are killing it at this podcast. I uh, I hope to be on again maybe someday if I'm on. Oh. But I, I really appreciate you guys. I, I love talking about this stuff. I can ramble on for hours, days, you know, as much as as much as you want. So we definitely feel that. Uh, make sure to if you want to, are interested in anything that Kimball talked about, make sure to follow him on Instagram at Sunsport Trading Co. Uh, probably one of the cooler Instagram feeds you could find to scroll through and, you know, find look at some of the cards he has. All the cards that you post are your own cards, right, Kimball? Yeah, yeah. Everything, I, whenever I, I always say, you know, I put everything in my profile. Anything's available unless I say NFS. I'm open to offers on anything. But I, um, anytime I sell something, I take it off. So anything's on there is my current inventory. So Cool. Yeah. Well, we'll, make, we'll definitely have you on again, 100%. So make sure to follow at CardsMax. Max on Twitter and Instagram to hear what sort of nonsense he thinks of in the mornings and starts firing off. And you can follow me at TV sports cards. Uh, we'll see you guys all next week. Uh, another great episode next. Well, our next guest will have to not be in California, Max. I think I am willing to adapt for the sake of having great guests. Yeah, exactly. Well, Kimball, you're definitely a great guest and we're excited. Thank to have you, you on so again. much. Have a good day guys.